This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. With summer coming up, I'm already dreading not only the traffic on the roads, but also the increased cost of groceries and the fact that my children eat all day long. You know, we all have stressors. Some are big and some are small, like an increased grocery bill. But therapy is a safe place to actually get these stressors off your chest and to figure out how you can actually work through them. There are many benefits to therapy for people from all walks of life. It's helpful to learn positive coping skills so you don't freak out about that grocery bill and how to set boundaries. Therapy can empower you to be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's convenient, flexible, and entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Moore today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash Russell Moore. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Well, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. When I was a doctoral student back in the day at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a fellow doctoral student had a T-shirt made one time that said, N.T. Wright is not the devil. The reason that he did so is because at the time, there was a heated controversy that went on within American evangelicalism. The N.T. Wright now is almost a universally beloved figure and unifying figure within a lot of people who previously would have had a different view. And I don't think that's necessarily because everyone agrees with everything that N.T. Wright writes, as much as it is that they have benefited from his work and scholarship. N.T. Wright is with us today. Do I really need to introduce him? I will. For those of you who don't know who he is, he has held a variety of academic posts at Oxford, Cambridge, and other places. He was canon of Westminster in 2000 and served as Bishop of Durham between 2003 and 2010. And he's right now the research professor emeritus of New Testament and early Christianity at St. Mary's College in the University of St. Andrews and Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. And he has written a book, one of 
I don't even know how many. I mean, I don't, I don't even know how many on my own shelf are uh, <laughs> D. Wright books, but there's a lot of them. He's written this new book that I really like called Into the Heart of Romans, A Deep Dive into Paul's Greatest Letter. And I think there might be some of you, because we have we have a lot of non-Christians who listen to this show who might say, oh, this is about something I don't know anything about, the book of Romans, not really relevant to me. Yes, it is. I think you will see in this conversation how this actually is relevant to you. N.T. Wright, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. And thank you for highlighting this book, which was exciting to do, actually. I'm sure. I mean, what a roller coaster <laughs> chapter of scripture yeah, to, absolutely. To, to interact with. Absolutely. I, I've, I've often said when I was in the ministry as a bishop, I often had to interview clergy for parish appointments. And one of the questions I would often ask them is, if you could take one chapter of scripture to a desert island, what would it be? And to make it more interesting, I would say you've already got Romans 8 and John 20. <laughs> <laughs> well, you mentioned in the book about the Roman road method of evangelism. That's how I was trained uh, as really? a yeah teenager to do evangelism, which for those of you who aren't familiar, it is going through the book of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, moving through to God's uh, love for the world, his sending of his son, belief in Christ, and, and ultimate uh, restoration helps people to sort of talk to their neighbors about what the gospel is actually about. But you don't think that's a really helpful way to look at it, do you? Well, I, I've often said I'd much rather people went by that road than that they were very vague about everything and didn't really know whether they believed in Jesus or not, or were just abandoning the whole thing and were living out on the street doing whatever. Uh, of course, anything that highlights the love of God, the death of Jesus, the fact that God's love then reaches out in that way to embrace us, this has to be good news. And much mm. rather people start there. But the problem is, of course, if you actually read Romans itself, there's an awful lot more in Romans than simply that outline would allow for. And it's one of the odd things that if you start off with saying, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, what people hear is that there is a God who has sort of set a moral bar or a moral examination, and we all flunk it, we all fail it. And that's not a great way to look at what it means to be human. And in another book, I talk about the fact that we've moralized our anthropology, our view of humans, as though how you behave morally is the only thing that matters. Whereas for Paul, certainly in Romans, what matters is the human vocation. Humans are called to be God's image bearers. And that comes out at certain climactic points in this letter. And when we sin is when we fail in our vocation to reflect the love of God into the world, which is a much more dynamic vision of what it means to be human than simply saying, here's a bunch of moral rules, and by the way, you've broken half of them, or maybe, maybe all of them. And then what God does to restore humans is not simply to say, well, I'm going to send my son. It's God, as in the Old Testament, God starts this extraordinary project of a covenant family launched with Abraham. Paul quotes Genesis 15 in Romans chapter 4, which is absolutely vital here, that what Jesus accomplishes is what God said he would do in the great covenant narrative. And we only really understand the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension 
if we understand that whole covenant plan. And so that all comes to a, a height in Romans 8, which is where the story really starts for this book particularly. Right after we finish uh, talking today, I will be talking to an atheist friend with whom I've talked uh, quite a bit about uh, issues of biblical storyline. He's really interested in those things, really interested in questions about Jesus. Uh, suppose he were to say to you today, we, we, we get you in on our, our meeting, and he says, okay, what if I see all of that and it resonates with me? What do I do now? What would you say to him? What do you, well, it depends entirely which bit of atheism he or she would be mm. coming from, of course, because there are several different things which actually are about denying that there is a God or that if there is a God, he cares about us. So the main thing I would say would be to get hold of one or other of the stories about Jesus, about Jesus going to his death, about all the things which made St. Paul say, fairly not long afterwards, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. It's the love of God revealed in the death of Jesus. And Paul draws that out in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39, the last great bit of that chapter, where it's because of the death of Jesus on our behalf, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so the, the, the appeal of the gospel is the appeal of love. It shouldn't be the appeal of fear, you know, say this prayer or it'll be the worst for you. It ought to be, there is a God who made this world and loves this world so much that he had this great plan at the climax of which came Jesus. Now, you can say that in a hundred different ways. It's there in the New Testament in dozens of different ways. And I would say if somebody is really wanting to get to grips with it, they should allow themselves the time, instead of quickly dismissing it, to sit down, to, to switch your phone off, to take an hour or two, to breathe deeply, and to read that story as though you're one of the spectators who's watching it going on, saying to yourselves all the while, supposing this really is the God who has come in person, incarnate, in order to rescue his world. Now, some people will, will do all of that and still say, does nothing for me. But sometimes, for some people, that will actually crack something open and open the possibility of being receptive to, receiving the love of God for oneself. Romans 8, of course, starts with, I mean, there, there are several, as, as we mentioned, several passages that for people who have been believers for a while are, are key life passages. And, and one of them is the very first verse of Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. I've mentioned this here before, so my audience knows that this is a, this is startling to me how often I see this now, especially with younger Christians, that unlike maybe when I started off in ministry, where I would have to emphasize God's holy, you can't just do whatever you want to his lordship over you. That now I notice that it's more often the case that somebody will believe somehow that God is angry with them. Not that they don't understand what the gospel is. They know how to lay all that out. But something emotionally feels as though God is angry with them and he, they kind of have a loophole to come to God through the gospel. But fundamentally, He's disappointed yeah, yeah, and he sees you as a failure. Do you notice that happening? And if so, how does somebody 
get around it. Yeah, I've worked as a pastor with student age people for quite a bit of my life in what you would call campus ministry, what we call university chaplaincy. And I've found, particularly in the 80s and 90s, when I was doing that, that there were a lot of younger people for whom, just as you described, is, is how they would naturally gravitate towards seeing God. And however much you told them God loves you, however much they see it in the Bible, God loves you, and they would still have this sense of, and I suspect, tragically, that a fair amount of that comes from what they have learned from their families, that they've had mm. one or more parents or, or step-parents or whoever who have been either bullies or have dominated them or have told them they're no good or have told them off for failing some exam or whatever. And then they've that has shaped their response. So when they hear about a God who has high moral standards, et cetera, et cetera, they make that God after the image of uh, basically an abusive parent. And that's a real, real problem. Mm which is why some young people easily gravitate into a caricature of the gospel, which is that God so hated the world that he killed his only son instead of God so loved the world that he sent his only son, which is a totally different thing. So I have found working with individuals that sometimes if they seem almost incapable of, of realizing that God is, is actually overflowing love, this is who he is, he's the creator who created out of love, if they find that they just can't get through to that, it may be that there's another sort of blockage somewhere. Like when Jesus talks about, unless you forgive other people, you may not be able to receive forgiveness yourself. It's as though there's a, an iron door in our hearts. And if we shut it against one option, we are shutting it against the other option as well. So sometimes in order to get to the God bit, we have to go through the, hang on, let's tell your story and find out what your background is. But this is obviously a very sensitive pastoral issue, which comes up differently with different people. In talking about the cross, sometimes there's a lot of uh, controversy over the idea of penal substitutionary atonement. And sometimes that shows up in controversy, for instance, around hymns and, and worship songs. Sure, sure. Think of Keith and Kristen Getty's song in Christ Alone, The, the Father's yeah. Wrath Was Satisfied. Uh, you talk about this book that you do think there's a sense in which the cross is penal substitutionary atonement and another sense in which it's not. What, what, in your view, is actually yeah, happening? This, is, this is really pretty important, and it hinges on that bit in Romans 8, 3 and 4, which I think is probably Paul's clearest statement of this, because when he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Jesus, then he says, because, dot, 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 but the because lands up with that God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. Now, when you say there is no condemnation for us, because God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That is very obviously penal, that's condemnation. It's very obviously substitutionary. Jesus died, therefore I do not die. So no question, this is penal substitution. The problem is that so many theologies of penal substitution, which have been put out over the last many hundreds of years, have had the framework wrong so that the crucial bit in the middle means something different because the framework has shifted. And that's back to what I said before, that if you think of an angry God who wants to lash out at sin, and it just so happens that he is an innocent person, which happens to be his own son, so he kills him, and that somehow makes it all right, 
then most people, including most young people today, just know instinctively that there's something wrong with, deeply wrong with that picture. And what's wrong with it is that it's pagan. That's the sort of thing you get in the old pagan myths about Agamemnon sacrificing his daughter so that the winds would blow so that his fleet could get to attack Troy. This is how pagans thought about angry gods killing somebody special in order to make something else happen. This is not about that at all. So to put penal substitution within its biblical context, you have to go all the way back. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And that doesn't just mean one or two proof texts. It means the whole narrative from Adam right the way through, particularly from Abraham right the way through, particularly from the servant in Isaiah 40 to 55, right the way through. And I've worked that through in various publications. But so you need to take the long run back to take that whole biblical story on board, that this is done out of the creator's love for the world. And the Jesus who comes to us and dies for us is himself the living embodiment of that creator, not some secondary being who the creator happens to want to kill in order somehow to make it all right. So it's a matter of how you tell the whole story. And for that, you need the whole Bible. You mentioned in the book that Romans 8 says that God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus, not that God condemned, condemned Jesus. Jesus. Yeah. What, what's the distinction there for you? Well, of course, the event is the same. It's still the horrible, bloody lynching of a, an innocent young Jewish man. But the theological meaning is that it isn't God condemning Jesus. It's that sin, and this is for this you need Romans 7 as well, which makes life more complicated. But sin is a kind of dark force that has swirled around and accumulated itself onto the people of Israel. That's part of what Romans 7 is about. But then this vocation of Israel to be the representative humans is handed on to Jesus. So that it's, I mean, I use an illustration in a different book. I don't think I use it in this one about how, where I come from up in the north of England, I've heard this said, that this is how a fox gets rid of its fleas, that the fox goes along the hedgerow and collects sheep's wool. And then the fox puts a ball of sheep's wool into its mouth and goes down into the river. And all the fleas go up on the fox and get into the ball of wool, which is the one dry bit. And then the fox sinks back and lets the ball of wool float off down the river. And that's Hmm. how the, the fleas are accumulated in that one place so that they can be dealt with. Now, in the same way, sort of, what's happened is that sin has done its worst in the people of God. How radical is that? And that Jesus takes all of that onto himself. He is the representative Israelite. That's part of what being Messiah means, so that all the sin of the world gets accumulated onto Jesus so that it can be condemned there. And that's where you see the purpose of God in Scripture all the way through. But that isn't to say that Jesus became bad or Jesus became evil or that God was punishing him, that he was standing in the place of humankind in general and Israel in particular to take upon himself the weight and the consequence of human rebellion and the failure of the human vocation. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. 
ETS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. When you think about what I mentioned at the beginning, the sort of fiery controversies that would go on, at least within Protestant Christianity, say in the late 90s, uh, the, the early 2000s, over your view of justification, does it seem to you that some of those debates have actually become resolved with, with people saying we, we – we find that, on second thought, maybe we have more in common here than, than we thought before. I, I would hope that we do. But part of the difficulty here is at, at another level. And it's only come clear to me really over the last 15 or 20 years, having worked out what Paul is precisely. I mean, OK, backstory. I started off doing my uh, doctoral research on Romans, but also on Galatians, because Romans and Galatians go so closely together. And I found it very difficult to put Romans and Galatians together. They didn't seem to be saying quite the same thing until I came upon the view, which I loosely called the new perspective on Paul, which actually shows that Paul is attacking the same targets in both letters, but just from different angles. And that made so much sense that once you've see it, seen it, you can't unsee it. And I followed that through in commentaries and books and articles and so on. But then uh, more recently, it's become clear to me that we have framed our justification language in terms of the medieval debates. And the medieval debates were all about how can my soul go up to heaven and find its way to the beatific vision, the vision of God. And so the question is, do you do that by following some legalistic regime or do you do it by saying a prayer and believing? Now, if that's the choice, then obviously the prayer and the faith is the crucial thing. But the Bible story isn't about how my soul goes up to heaven. The whole Bible story from Genesis to Revelation is how God comes down to be with his people. That's what God wanted to do from the beginning. It's what God has done in Jesus. It's what God continues to do by the Spirit. And when you frame justification that way and say that the aim of it all is new creation, it's not getting us out of this terrible place called earth and off to someplace else called heaven. It's for heaven and earth to come together. That framework, which I think more and more people are getting hold of, then suddenly justification makes sense. And the way I put it is like this. God has promised to put the whole world right at the end. That's the final restoration, the, the, the liberation of creation from its slavery to decay. Now, in the present time, because of the death of Jesus, God puts human beings right so that they can be part of his putting right project for the world. That's justification by faith in the present, leading to the fresh vocation. Romans is full of fresh vocation. Think of Romans 12, but it's also there in Romans 5 and 8 and all through, so that we can then be part of God's putting right project for the world. I think when you say it like that, an awful lot of people who may have been puzzled in the 1990s might well say, actually, yeah, I think this makes sense. No doubt there will be some holdouts, as I think you call them in America, but I hope that there'll be fewer and fewer. But but even with a, a cosmic restoration, vocation view, even if someone corrects the idea that what, what the 
gospel is about is getting my individual soul to heaven and letting everything else burn up. You have somebody on his deathbed who's thinking through his life and saying, I'm, I'm fearful of judgment. And I, I do see when I look in, in the Bible, I see Jesus talking about saying to people, depart from me, I never knew you. And how do I, how do I know that I am going to personally, not just the universe, but how do I know that I am going to be welcomed into that new creation? I, I would what sort to, of language would you have? I, I would want to, to take them through either the last paragraph of Romans 8, finishing with nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God, because it's, a, it's about the response of love to the overflowing love of the gospel. And, and if somebody just glimpses that for a moment, there's a kind of a sigh of relief about it. Or maybe, and I've done this sometimes with people in that condition, to read Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And the fact that you say, you are with me, that that's not a threat, that's a promise that God will be with them. And again, you can feel sometimes, if you're with at somebody's bedside, maybe holding their hand, you can feel them relax. He is with me. He is with me. And, and I, I remember a, a wise old teacher many years ago here in Oxford some, who was doing a lecture on the atonement, and he went through this theory, that theory, the other theory, all the different theories. And at the end, one of the students said, how much of this does somebody have to believe in order to be a Christian? And the wise man smiled, and he said, very little, actually. Something about God and his love, something about me trusting him and because of what happened with Jesus. He said, that'll get you going. And if you happen to be on your deathbed, that'll be maybe enough to enable you to die in faith and hope. And so it's not a matter of teaching a whole vast theology of atonement for somebody who's not really able to take very much in. It is about drawing them as close as possible to the overflowing love of God in Jesus. And I have done that and I would do it again and again. You have talked about for many years the idea of covenant faithfulness of God, and and you transition that over a little bit in this book to covenant justice. What's the what's the difference, and why is it important to talk about? <laughs> it's very difficult. When I was young, before I learned any foreign languages, or when I started to learn foreign languages, I began with Latin and French when I was eight. But I assumed that you had one English word, one Latin word, or as it might be a French word, and that they were just one-on-one -on -one equivalents. Now, if you have a word like, say, table, well, the Latin for table, mensa, basically means a table, so you can swap them to and fro. But there are lots of words that don't map onto each other like that at all because of cultural differences, all sorts of words which just don't translate exactly. And I've got, you can't see them, but just behind where my computer screen is, I've got a Cambridge Greek lexicon, I've got a Greek English lexicon, I've got a lexicon of the New Testament. And these are full of ways of saying, actually, this word carries these nuances, not the ones that we might have thought. And in the middle of these books, I've got the concordance to the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, because when you get a word like the Greek word dikaizune, which for Plato meant broadly justice, well, what are the Hebrew words that that word translates? And the Hebrew words are words which don't just mean what Plato meant by justice, but also mean faithfulness, loyalty, trustworthiness, reliability, all sorts of things. And we don't have 
one English word which will carry all the meanings that a word like dikaizune would carry for Paul. And there's a danger in thinking, oh, dikaizune, that means righteousness, because righteousness itself has meant all sorts of things in English over the last 400 years, not all of which would be covered by dikaizune. So we just have to be a bit wary and a bit, as we would say, canny about trying to nuance it according to what is going on in the passage. And I make no apology for that, because actually all translators do that. And if they think they're not, then they're just fooling themselves. You mentioned these parodies of truth. What would you think are are similar parodies of truth in a in a contemporary context? Wow. Good question. Good question. <sighs> I think particularly in liberal democracies, and I know Britain has a monarchy, but it's a constitutional monarchy and we function as a liberal democracy, similar to the liberal democracies in Europe and similar with differences to what you find in North America, obviously. And because that all really emerged through the enlightenment of the 18th century, and because the rhetoric of Europe and America over the last 200 years, two or 300 years, has been, we are now living in the modern world, we've discovered modern government, therefore, we are going to solve the problems of the world. The Enlightenment always thought that it was solving the problems of the world by its new systems, whether it's the French Revolution, whether it's Thomas Jefferson and the American Revolution, or whether it's the slightly more subtle forms of political change that we've had in my country or that have happened in France and in Germany and elsewhere, Italy and so on. But we've all bought into this myth that because we are post-Enlightenment people, we are now the grown-up ones. We are now the developed world. We have got the inside track on justice and wisdom and and how to, how to do life in general. And so we can look down on those benighted people in other parts of the world, and we call them the developing world, which is kind of patronizing, or the, or the, or the third world or something. Instead of which, actually, if you were to take the whole Bible story, the whole Bible vision of what it means to be human, we in the modern West are among the most arrogant creatures that have ever walked the planet. And you can see that because whenever something goes wrong, which we don't like, what do we do? We go and use... Ha, redemptive violence. We drop bombs on civilians because, well, that's what you have to do because it's the only language they understand, and so on and so on. I could get quite worked up about this, and indeed, some, I sometimes do. So we have fooled ourselves with the language of the Enlightenment into thinking that we are the ones who now know how the world really should be. And that idea of we are the ones who know of course, goes with the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism. We are the superior ones, the Gnostics, the know-all ones. And there are many in the West who think we in the modern West, we now know it all. And actually, when you look and see what we've done around the world, we know nothing because we, have, we are blind to our own folly. So that would be where I would start, actually, to say there are parodies of things going on out there. But then, of course, it goes down the scale through things like truth, that if anyone... You know, when I was growing up, there was one of the newspapers in Britain which claimed to give you the facts straight. That newspaper was the official organ of the British Communist Party. And even at a young age, we soon learned, don't trust the rhetoric of people who say, I'm telling you the truth, I'm telling you the truth, because they're probably pushing a line. So we, we all do this, and politicians do it all the time, but so sadly do church leaders sometimes. And so we need a healthy dose of humility it will be good for us all. You mentioned in the book issues of ecology. One of the things I see now a lot 
is not so much the idea that, well, the, the earth is just going to be burned up. So why should we care about mm. it? As it is, this is too big. It's too abstract. There's nothing that can really be done about issues such as climate change and, and, and so forth. So we ought to just learn how to live with it. H how would you help Christians to think through that better? Yeah, I, I would want to say, yes, the issues are huge. Um, like the, the present political issues are huge. You know, we, uh, back in the day, we thought that actually Western democracy was going to be the thing that would change the world and make everybody happy. And now, <clears throat> right now, whether it's with Yemen and Syria, but particularly with Ukraine and now in the Middle East, we haven't got a good answer. And there are Christians praying there day and night and suffering and waiting and hoping, but we don't have an easy answer. And anyone who thinks they've got one just hasn't understood how complex the, the whole thing is. It's the same with climate change. It's absolutely vast. And though there are long articles in the press and elsewhere about it, and people go on the radio and television to tell you what's going on, it, it's huge. And one of the things as Christians we need to remember is that this is God's world, in a sense, not ours. It's, it's God's business. But what you find in Scripture is that God wants to order his world wisely through human beings. And it's because we've forgotten that that's what Genesis 1 itself was all about. You know, people who make a great fuss about the literal truth of Genesis and so on usually completely omit the whole climax, which is that humans are made to reflect God's love and sovereignty into the world and to reflect the praises and laments of the world back to God. So that then, quite clear Romans 5.17, those who receive the gift of covenant membership are to reign in life. What does that look like? Well, in Romans 8, it looks like suffering and prayer, but it looks like much more than that because elsewhere in Paul, we see that our human responsibility is to be the wise orderers of families, of towns, of um, of, of looking after the, the places where we live and doing good to our neighbors and so on. And when you extend that out, then if somebody says, oh, this climate change thing, it's just too big and there's nothing, nothing we can do, so we just have to leave it up to God. I would say that's rather like somebody who's become a Christian and who is struggling with besetting sins in their life, but who comes to me and says, well, I've got this sin problem, but you know what? One day God is going to make me over and I'll be raised from the dead. I won't have to. So I'm just not going to bother about it. And the answer is you would want to hit that person with some what we call in the trade inaugurated eschatology. You would want to say you are already in Christ. You are already indwelt by the Spirit. You are already a new human. Now, behave like a new human. And if you pray and work and trust that will happen. In the same way we are responsible for God's world, we have to think wisely. The churches should be commissioning people to study properly and carefully and not in a random or, or over-the-top fashion where our world is actually going and what can and should be done about it. And I would say that politically as well as ecologically. I was talking not too terribly long ago to a friend who had just lived through an awful time. It was a, a suicide attempt of a loved one of hers. And I asked, is your church caring for you through this? And she said, yes, but they've Romans 8, 28 at me. <sighs> and I knew exactly what she meant by that, which is the use of uh, all things work together for the good of, of those who love God and are in Christ Jesus, that passage. But 
it being used almost as, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger <laughs> as a sort of platitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How should we? Should oh, we uh, quote yeah. that to somebody who's in suffering at all? And if so, what does it mean? Yeah, I, I have to say here, I, I was really helped when I was working on this for a previous book, actually, by a couple of friends. Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmat in Toronto had written a book called Romans Disarmed, where they had taken mm. the Greek very seriously and had pointed out that Paul uses the word to work with and that it's about God working with those who love him. It's not for those who love him, it's God working with them. And who are those who love him? Those who love him, he's just described in the previous verses, as the people who are groaning in prayer with the wordless groaning of the Spirit in their hearts. That's the description of loving God and being prepared to be caught up in his purposes. And the point of Romans 8, 28, is that then this is part of the key means by which God is putting the world right. So it's not a sort of stoic, oh, well, it'll all work out, or as you say, what doesn't kill you make you stronger. And as well as Walsh and Kiesmet, and I do want to give credit where credit is due here, I was greatly helped by one of my own research students, um, Haley Gorenson-Jacob, who's now published her book, Conform to the Image of the Sun, where she argues a very similar case. It's We know that God is working all things for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And the called according to his purpose is we are called to be like little small working models of Jesus himself, conformed to the image of the Son, so that we have a responsibility for what's going on in the world. And that responsibility starts with the prayer of lament for the awful things that happen in the world. So it certainly can't be used, or surely shouldn't be used, as a way of saying, oh, well, experience is what you get when you don't get what you want, or something silly like that. It, it's not, that's not what Paul is saying. And interestingly, the wrong translation, which was in the King James Version, was corrected in the RSV, but then was uncorrected again in the NRSV. So it's come and gone in the translation tradition. But I think one of the key things here is that it is a, this whole passage is about vocation, not salvation. Salvation is the, the larger picture, but within that larger picture, the human vocation is to be those who, in love for God, allow that prayer of unknowing, that lament, to become part of their daily rhythm of prayer and worship. And it's through that that God is working all things together for good. This morning, I was talking to a, a journalist, not a Christian, Jewish uh, journalist, who was asking me about a, a situation well in the past, but it was a, a controversy that happened in a particular Christian community over Calvinism. Mm -hmm. And she said, I'm trying to understand what Calvinism is and why this is controversial. And so I was helping her with this and realized it took more time than I really had to start talking about what predestination is. And of course, we come to Romans 8. This is, this is one of the parts of it that tends to be either very unsettling to people or very reassuring to people, this idea that God has predestined us, those he, he predestined, he called, and those he called, he, he justified. What, what is predestination? This too, <laughs> like many other questions, goes back to the Middle Ages it goes back to St. Augustine before that, and then Aquinas and so on. And the reformers, Luther and Calvin, 
adjusted some of the bells and whistles with Augustine and Aquinas, but it's still the same thing because they're still reading Romans 8, 12 to 30, as though it's about how I get to heaven. And the bit you missed out at the end there is those he justified, them he also glorified. And we have read glorified as meaning going to glory, i.e. going to heaven. But actually, and this again, my friend Haley Gorenson Jacob argued this very strongly in her dissertation, that glorified throughout that passage in Romans isn't about the final destination, which shouldn't in any case be heaven by itself. It should be the new heavens and the new earth. But the glorification comes from Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, it's about the human vocation. You have made us a little lower than the angels to crown us with glory and honor, putting all things in subjection under our feet. In other words, glorification is about people becoming genuinely human at last, which means being put in authority over God's world. It also, by the way, has to do with God coming back in glory as he'd always promised, so that the arrival of the Spirit in people's lives is itself the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope of God's glory and the thing which generates and sustains the glory which was always intended for human beings, i.e. responsible stewardship over God's world. So that's what this passage is about. This passage is about God's purpose to put the world right through human beings. Who is the human being through whom the world is put right? Jesus, of course. That's why that very same passage, Paul says, we are to be conformed to the image of the Son. We are reflecting God into the world. And that's what God has called us in order to do. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and Counting, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. I put in the margin of my copy of this book some exclamation points and an implied amen after you (laughs) were talking at one point about spontaneity and and the idea of spontaneity as authenticity. And you're talking about this process of renewal in a person that sometimes becomes more or less spontaneous, but starts with what can feel kind of disciplined and regimented sometimes and, and, and thus artificial, it feels, to, to some people. How do you help people to, to think through what it means when they, they feel like in discipleship, they're just sort of going through paces when yeah, it ought yeah, to just be yeah. spontaneous? Well, I, I was fortunate as a young man to learn two things, one, music, and two, sport. And I discovered in both that 
if you practice the piano, which is what I was playing, and the guitar, which is also what I was playing long enough, then the things which are really difficult and, and make your fingers sore, or you think you can't do that stretch, whatever, you practice them, you take that piece, and you, you go at it, and you go at it. And then one day you'll realize you've played it as though you're playing it in your sleep. And when you see a concert pianist with the fingers flying to and fro, this doesn't happen by accident. They weren't born with that. They had to work at passage after passage after passage. Um, and and the, having worked at it, then it becomes second nature. Now, I've written about this in my book, Virtue Reborn, which in America is called After You Believe, that there are many, many things in life which are hard when you begin them, but you have to practice them so that they become second nature. Now, the trouble with so much mid-20th century culture onwards is that we've seen that as the goal, and we've then thought that only what I do naturally and easily is worth anything, and that anything else shows that it's not really what I ought to be doing. Or then, worse, if you take a particular view of justification, oh, that must be justification by works, trying to impress God. But actually, Christian virtue is like learning to play the piano or learning to play, say, a difficult shot at tennis. You know, to begin with, I just couldn't get that backhand right. But then you practice and you practice and perhaps with a coach. And then suddenly, in the heat of a game, you realize, wow, I just did that shot and I wasn't even thinking about it. It had become second nature. And the same way, all the basic Christian virtues and the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are all things which are hard, which do not come naturally. Forgiveness does not come naturally to us. But when we pray, when we seek God's will, when we strive to, to figure out what would it mean to love this person and not to hold against them the, the terrible thing which they did, then Sometimes, to our surprise, we find that we've done it, that we've forgiven them, or that we've been able to love them. And, and so the idea that it only counts if you can do it spontaneously, that's, that's a modern myth. And it go, again, it goes back, like a lot of things, to the Enlightenment. And part of that problem with the Enlightenment was the idea that humans are basically good with just one or two little glitches, so that if we're basically good, we just ought to do what comes naturally, and then it'll be all right, won't it? And that was set over against an older theological idea that humans are basically bad and that anything that they're doing is, is, is never going to please God. And that's almost as damaging as thinking that we're basically good. So the answer is no. We are called from the cradle to reflect God into the world. And we sort of know that in our bones, but we get so easily distracted. And then learning how to discipline that into uh, the second nature of, of actually loving God and loving people. That's, that's what it's all about. So would you apply that to prayer? Someone who finds it very difficult to pray and who feels as though he or she should have a, a spontaneous sort of ongoing conversation with God, yeah. that it would, be, it would be better to, to read other people's prayers for um, a while oh, until they become accustomed to it. To, to be sure. I mean, I, I use many prayers that have come down through the centuries because I'm, a, I'm an Anglican, I'm a Church of England person, and the prayer book is a wonderful book. And, and as I've grown older, I've often found that prayers which I've vaguely known since childhood because I've heard them in church, etc., they now, they say exactly what I want to say. And I don't know whether it's me that's changed or, or what, but you kind of grow into the, the, the wisdom of the Christian centuries. And of course, those prayers aren't themselves 
part of the Bible, they're not authoritative, but they are ways in. And often, when you're praying with other people's words, people who have gone before us and left a great legacy, then that can turn into a prayer which is actually talking to God in my own words. It's as though that can be a way in. But I have to say, we're all very different. We now know a lot about whether it's the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs or whatever. We have different personalities. Some people naturally pray one way. Some people find that way very difficult and much prefer this way. A good or wise spiritual director, an older Christian friend, can often put their finger on it and say, well, you're trying to put on a suit of clothes that was designed for somebody quite different. There are other ways of praying, and let me help you find what those might be. And of course, ultimately, the words of prayer are given to us by Jesus himself. All prayer really flows out of the Lord's Prayer. And of course, the Lord's Prayer can become dry and just a formula which we rattle off without thinking about it, heaven help us. But if we then take the time and go down into it clause by clause, oh my goodness, and then let it expand, who knows what's going to happen. So so yes, spontaneity in prayer, of course, that's great. The most spontaneous prayer is usually help when one is in a mess, mm-hmm. and that's fine. But then for sustained prayer, for the world, for the people we love, etc., it is a discipline. It's sometimes very hard. And sometimes the prayers that come out of those really hard times are the ones which are really going to count. Back to Romans 8, 26 and 27 again. I want to ask you something that is not relevant to Romans 8, except maybe tangentially. But if we think about a, a big controversy that has been in some sectors of the church for a while on women in ministry. One of the things I've noticed over the past several years is that some of us who hold to more traditionalist views, for lack of a a better word, have looked around and have seen, wait a minute, some of the people who hold the same views we do actually are misogynists. And we, we have seen horrific treatment of women, sometimes, many times, justified with Bible verses. And some of my friends who hold more egalitarian views, ordination of women, have had a similar experience, except they're saying, some of the people who agree with me on women's ordination don't want to use the word father, that that's a patriarchal construct, or they they don't think that gender actually exists, and they really do want to revise everything. And so we're kind of finding ourselves together here. I'm wondering, what what would you say to someone who's actually struggling with this issue and who says, okay, well, I would like to believe uh, women in ministry, but but does that challenge actually the Catholicity of the church, since this is a very recent thing? And am I just sort of imposing modern categories on Scripture? Oh, wow. Um, How long have we got? Obviously, (laughs) these are huge issues. One of the puzzles that I face is that we basically went through all this 30 years ago in the UK. We had the big debates, and all the churches except basically the Roman Catholic Church, which we, we couldn't change in England anyway, have now got women clergy. And that has not been universally popular. It's not been universally welcomed. Some people have gone and become Roman Catholics or indeed Greek Orthodox in order to get out of what they see as a compromised church. I have for years now, for decades now, argued for women in ministry, but I've noticed that the language we use is often very slanted. You use the word egalitarian, 
I, I'm suspicious of the word egalitarian because mm. actually I don't think men and women are the same or, or, or on, on equal footing in, in the way that egalitarian often is often taken. Men and women are very different. There is a spectrum psychologically, physically, etc., and there is an overlap, but broadly, and, and the people who edit magazines know this perfectly well, that why do men's magazines and women's magazines still have such wide readership? They're appealing to things which simply are in in human beings being what they are. So I don't think that an ordained man is necessarily going to be doing exactly the same sort of stuff as an ordained woman or vice versa. There will be overlap. There will be many tasks which they can do equally well, but there will be different giftings. And so then does this mean I'm complementarian, you see, because the the, the word complementarian has been taken to mean, therefore women should sit down, shut up and go and make the tea or whatever it might be, rather than being leaders in worship or in teaching, what have you. And I want to say there is a glorious complementarity about male and female, but that doesn't mean that women should not be ordained. And so when then I take the argument back, and I, I totally see your point about help. Some people who are on my side are really wild people out there or wild people out there. I mean, I've I've found this, my dear friend and former colleague Rowan Williams, sometime Archbishop of Canterbury, there were some issues on which we discovered that he and I were on the other side of some invisible divide somewhere, but we were much, much closer to one another across that divide than mm -hmm. we were to the wild people at the extremes. So, and it's important to say that and to realize that, that we mustn't bundle everything up and think that if you take a left-wing stance on this, then you're left-wing on everything or the other way around. So all the different issues are different issues. Where I would start, and I've said this again and again, I would start with Romans 16 and John 20. Romans 16, we have Paul greeting people who are apostles, people who are in ministry, and these include women. And the scholarship has been done, and people like Junior and so on. These are definitely women. They're definitely in ministry. And who does Paul give Romans 16 to, to take to Rome? Phoebe, who is a deacon in the church in Kenkrei. Now, if you take a letter to somebody in the ancient world, it's highly likely you'll be the one to read it out and probably to explain what it means. So there's, I would say, at least a 65% chance that the first person ever to expound the letter to the Romans was a woman deacon from Kenkrei in the eastern port of Corinth. So Romans 16 is pretty strong. John 20, I think, is even stronger because Jesus risen from the dead, the first person he meets is Mary Magdalene. And he doesn't say to Mary, Mary, please go and get Peter, because I need to make an important announcement, and it's obviously got to be done by a man. So go and get Peter. He says to Mary, you go and tell my brothers, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, all Christian ministry flows from the announcement that the crucified Jesus is raised from the dead and he is Lord of the world. The first person to be receiving that ministry from Jesus himself is Mary. And at that point, this is a kind of a, a mic drop moment as far as I'm concerned. You know, the, the, this, this seems to me to clinch the deal. And if by the fourth and fifth century, people were worried about having women in positions of responsibility. We shouldn't treat that as, oh, well, that's the Catholicity of the church, therefore we've got to do that. This is where authority of Scripture might really bite to people's surprise. But actually, if we go back to the Bible, we'll find that Jesus and Paul are on the side of 
bringing women into appropriate ministry, which is every bit as much on all fours as the ministry which, which men have had. Last question. You are one of the most high-profile apologists for Christianity as well as teachers of Christians in Christianity. How do you know it's true? <laughs> because Jesus was raised from the dead. And how do I know that's true? Well, I've written short things and long things about that. Ultimately, it rests on something that has happened in history. However, it isn't simply historical reconstruction. It's as C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not necessarily because I can see it clearly, but because by its light I can see everything else. When I put the resurrection of Jesus in the middle of the worldview picture, then so many other things make sense. And they make sense of me, they make sense of the world, they make sense of the human calling, they make sense of music, they make sense of love. All sorts of things make sense once you say that God raised the crucified Jesus from the dead. And if somebody says, show me the historical evidence, okay, let's sit down and go through it. And I've spent some time in doing that. But it's, it's both the history and then the appropriation in seeing that it makes sense of everything else. The book is called Into the Heart of Romans, a deep dive into Paul's greatest letter, N.T. Wright, thank you. You have taught me for 25 years <laughs> in all sorts of ways, and you have in this conversation, too. Thanks for being with us. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. All the very best. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. Host, Russell Moore. Producer, Ashley Hales. Associate producers, Abby Perry and Mackenzie Hill. Director of Operations for CT Media, Matt Stevens. Audio engineering provided by Dan Phelps. Video producer is Abby Egan. And the theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.